Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. Today we have on Aaron Bates, the Dodgers Major League Assistant Hitting Coach, and he's also the Director of Hitting for the Minor Leagues. Aaron was a third round pick out of North Carolina State by Boston in 2006 and played eight professional seasons. He logged 12 plate appearances with the Red Sox in 2009 before joining the coaching ranks. His final swings came with the Dodgers in 2014. From there, he served as a hitting coach in the Arizona, Midwest, and California leagues. And in 2018, he became the assistant hitting coordinator for LA's minor league system. On the show, we discuss the process and what that means to the Dodgers minor league system. We go over what game planning looks like for him, how we can better simplify things as coaches, and we also go into what he has learned during COVID and so much more. This episode is so good, and here is Aaron Bates. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I, I've been uh, doing a lot of research. I know that that you 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 have a, your hands full with multiple roles, and and I know that there are a lot of people who spoke highly of you, and and I'm so thankful. Uh, to get you on the mic and to get to listen uh, and, and learn from you today. But for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better and, and really why you decided to get into coaching, do you mind giving us a short snapshot of your baseball background and then why you decided to hop into the coaching side? Sure. Um, I went to uh, North Carolina State University, drafted by Boston in 2006 and worked my way up to that organization and briefly played in the major leagues in 2009. And then bounced around some other organizations. And I think all along when I was playing, I never had actually, I never had envisioned myself coaching at all. I guess was a student of the game in a sense and, and tried a lot of different things at the plate. And I always kind of felt some of my be- better hitting coaches as a player were my teammates. Um, obviously, I was fortunate enough to come up in Boston's organization when Theo and, and, and Ben Sherrington and, and Mike Hazen, who are all GMs in their own right right now. And, and, uh, and, my hitting coordinator was a guy named Victor Rodriguez, who's an assistant hitting coach with the with the Indians now. And Vic and I are really close. And, and they just taught you taught you the game a different way. And they taught you how to have good at bats. And, and really just uh, so your manager could trust you when you walk up to the plate pretty much. So that was kind of a background on on my development as a hitter through the minor leagues. And then it, which definitely helped me later on in life and being a coach now. You know, at the time I had not planned on coaching. I would say coaching kind of found me. My last year playing with the Dodgers, Love I was that. just a veteran guy. I had gone to double A and was helping uh, – some of those young hitters and and uh, at the time John Watson was our farm director and he asked me if I'd be interested in coaching uh, the rest of the season as well I think it was beginning of August at this time in 2014 and John was real good to me yeah and he gave me an opportunity and I just kind of enjoyed it and, and, and went from there I was a AZL hitting coach for two years in uh, Arizona as my wife and I welcomed our our son at the time in 2015 but yeah I, I would definitely say coaching found me and it was not something that I set out on on wanting to do my whole life it just kind of uh, it popped up and I enjoyed it Oh, that's fantastic and I I you know I, I never played professionally but it was never really something that was on my mind until I was done and then I was like oh crap like what <laughs> what am I gonna do now and and so I I went back to school and uh, I was like man I I really miss like the team aspect of it like being around the guys the competition aspect and so that is that something that you felt as well? Well, um, it was a little different only because um, my mom's Puerto Rican. So I played in Puerto Rico every every winter. So I was fortunate enough to play down there for eight seasons. At the time, Alex Core was our GM and he had uh, we had played together down there for three or four years and he retired and he went into the GM role. 
And so I stayed in shape the whole first year. I coached to see if I, if I didn't like it, I was going to go back and play in Puerto Rico and, and kind of keep playing until another opportunity presented itself or, or, or figure out what I wanted to do. So I kind of transitioned. I think I, I was able to go out of playing and be totally content and, and, and ready to take the next step. And I always kind of had said that I wanted to start my next career as young as possible. When I was drafted, I was a redshirt sophomore at 22. So I always kind of felt like I was behind the eight ball a little bit, whether it was true or not, just kind of how you felt like you wanted to be at the next level yesterday because of your age. So then when I decided to coach, I, I just said, I'm going to be done playing at some point, And uh, I'd rather start coaching at a younger age than, than wait and keep playing. Sure. No, I love that. I think that that's awesome. And you've had a ton of really, really cool like influences in your career. And obviously you, you have been successful up to this point and I'm sure that those influences are showing, but like all the names that you're dropping, it's like, dang, you have, you have had a, uh, like a dream cast of coaches that it, you've gotten to be influenced by. When I think about it, you step back and think about it, I really am fortunate and a lot of it's luck and being on certain teams and, and, and certain places. But there's a laundry list, and that's just from my playing days. I would say my coaching, you know, inspirations and mentors. The list goes on too, um, as far as development as a hitting coach. But yeah, I mean, just as a as a side thing, it's funny. I I played against Kike Hernandez when he was 18 in Puerto Rico. We played against each other for three years, so we have some always some side jokes. It's pretty funny. Just it's just a really small world as far as all the people that you come across. And I, I think playing winter ball it no doubt helped me develop as a player. And and you just you just learn. You're just playing the game more. It's almost like the more you're playing, the more the better you're going to get, and and the more experiences you're going to have. But mm-hmm. as a coach, yeah, I mean, Tim Hires is one of my mentors as a coach. He helped me a ton. He was a Red Sox coordinator, then he was the hitting coach for the Dodgers. He kind of he shaped the role that I'm in now, as far as bridging that gap between the minor leagues and the major leagues, as far as uh, you know, having that assistant hitting coach kind of go back and forth and make sure everybody's on the same page. And Timmy took care of me great. You know, he was he was really good to me. And, and then. My boss at the time when I was co- first right coaching was Gabe Kapler, who ironically Cap had retired for one year in 2007 and he was a manager in the Red Sox organization. So I had known him from then. And then fast forward eight years and, and he's, he's now our boss as director of play development. I'd had some background with him as a player when he was managing. So it was just a really small world and the, the way it all kind of came full circle. Oh, that's fantastic. I love hearing that. And, and I, I don't know, Tim, personally, I just know, uh, I know some guys who kind of like yourself who have been around him a lot and they have nothing but awesome things to say. And, and, uh, I got to hear him at Slugfest last year and, and he was fantastic. And so you go to Alex and, and you look at one of like the best managers, former managers in the game and uh, just an awesome, awesome human being. That's really, really cool. But let's talk a little bit about you on the coaching side. So you're working with big league guys every single day. And, and I ask this question to, to everyone who works with big league guys, because it's, it's different and because they're some of the best players in the world and they, you know, they can be hesitant to taking coaching. Maybe I I guess you could say, or, or, or they got there for a reason. They're very confident in their abilities and you kind of have to gain their trust. And so with working with those guys, how are you an asset and, and, and an advocate for them? How do you gain their trust and, and really truly get to know them so you can help them? Uh, you know, I think a lot of it is just social skills, using, you know, your eyes and kind of feeling out the situation. And, and people who know me <clears throat> know how sarcastic I am. I'm really, I'm extremely sarcastic. So I will use that um, a lot of ways to get a message across that's very non-threatening or, or non, uh, you know, confrontational if, if you want to get a message across to a player. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of times the best way to gain someone's trust is not saying anything at all. And it probably takes more discipline to not say something. And, and, you have that in the minor leagues too. Like I, there's a couple of years I filled in or I came in halfway through the season in 2016 and um, in Great Lakes, Michigan. 
And I told Cap when I went out there, I said, you know, I'm probably not going to coach anybody for the first week and a half or so. I'm just going to watch them and, and kind of, because they're, they're probably expecting me to come in and, and help them or say something right away. And you actually, I think, gain a player's trust by not saying something because then, it, you know, they get to know you a little bit more and they know that you're a lighthearted guy. And even if you, you have something that could fix them right then, it's probably not the right time. You know, it's, it's all about timing and kind of, if it's a major league player, if you're gaining their trust and, you know, asking them how they feel first, not necessarily just uh, um, throwing the information out that they, that you think might help them. Sure. Sure. No, great answer. I love that. Uh, with with uh, the organization, you've been a part of just two absolutely fantastic organizations who have either won or been in the world series, uh, in, you know, in the last 20 years, probably the two most uh, winningest franchises in the game, which is really, really cool. But what sets the Dodgers apart in your opinion? So I, I know that you haven't like jumped around and been with all 29 or been with 29 other teams, but you can kind of see, and you have friends from the outside. What, what do you guys do differently? Because it, right now it just looks like a machine and you guys are churning like so many players out on a yearly basis. Uh, and, and I'm sure that there's a reason behind that, but, but what really sets you guys apart? I mean, I think it starts from the top. It starts from Andrew and, and Stan Kasten and the ownership group and giving player development the resources to to help develop the players. And, and then then you can kind of fast forward back to when Cap took over, um, you know, as, as farm director and the culture that he set and the coaches that, you know, that, that he hired and, and the, the process that he goes about doing that. And then you go to the scouting as far as Blake Gasparino goes and, and, and Josh Burns and the, the draft pick. So it's, it's kind of like a cohesive unit, you could say. And there's no you know, pillars between each department. It's all kind of a unified thing. So player development talks to scouting a ton and major leagues talking to the minor leagues and, and we're all always in communication with one another. So it basically, you know, it takes a, a village to raise these guys. And so we're, we're all on the same page. And, and I think that's what a, a major part of it is, 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 is you have good people, you have a good culture. Your Andrew's just, he's, he's the best. So he, he gives you the tools you need to succeed. And, and then it's up to the staff and the players to, to go get better and, and try to, you know, impact the major league club. No doubt. No doubt. That's really, really cool. So I was telling you before we started recording that I remember your fan graphs article that you did, uh, which was really, really good. And I'll, I'll make sure I put a link to that in the show notes. You really, you hit on data a little bit. So you talked about you guys are much more process oriented. And if, if somebody lined out and they hit the ball hard, then that's okay. And so I think us naturally as, as, as former, you know, former baseball players now, but, uh, as competitors, we look at that and we go, man, that's, that's really hard to do. So how do you, how do you guys make that important to players? And then just kind of walk us through what preaching the process looks like for you. Um, yeah, you have different data things and progress reports, kind of daily reports that kind of players can see their scores or different things like that, that you can kind of, you know, magnify the good and, and, and really harp on the process and, and, and sticking to it. Um, that goes back to my days being raised as a Red Sox. That's, that was, uh, that was the whole thing. And actually, uh, Mookie Betts and I were talking about that yesterday about how we were raised as hitters, you know, and how it was just process, process and having good at bat. And so the manager could trust you when you, whatever level you were at, basically, that you were going to have a good at bat. And so it, it, you know, that if you, if you stick to that process, that the results will come and, and that they'll, uh, they'll be there in the end as opposed to chasing hits or chasing results because there's a, there's a luck factor of baseball and imperfect game in that sense. So, you want the guys to have the best work ethic and routine and, and, and not be too high or too low throughout the, throughout the season. So I think it starts from, you know, the coaches and player development and, and, and our front office and player development, they, you know, they'll promote guys based on, 
even if their their triple slash line is not the greatest looking one, but if they're having a good process in there and they're lying out and they're hitting the ball hard, you know, Reimer will will promote them if, they, if necessary. And so it's I think it's a commitment from the from the whole organization as far as really what you value, and then it's sticking to those guns when and you know backing it up with guys getting promoted and that sort of thing. No, that's really good. And how important is understanding and simplifying what you value rather than because again for a player they could literally they could go online and they could find any statistic that, that they're looking for and i even for me and i'm sure for you too it can be overwhelming whenever you're looking at that whole thing as a whole but how important is, is being able to simplify it for them yeah i mean you got to be able to take the information and make it as simple as possible i think that's what makes a good part of what makes a good hand coach is you have all this information out there all this data and you have to be a funnel right and kind of simplify it to to get the message across to the player. If you have all the information and you can't coach it or teach it or don't know the why behind it, then it's not it's not going to do you a whole lot of good because the player is going to look at you cross-eyed like I have no idea what that means when you're talking to them. Sure, sure. And uh, simple wins, I, and that's something that for some reason has been ringing in my head about the last two years. It's like in, in a world of even more complex ideas, simple simple wins. And so that that's really, that's really refreshing to hear, and I, I love to hear that. But let, let's go ahead and we're going to switch gears a little bit and let's let's talk about let's say that you that you are working with X player you don't know anything about them that they may have just been traded for you guys and I'm sure you guys have done a ton of homework on them and so you have some information anyways but let's say that you don't uh, so let's let's say what, where do you start like like what are you doing with this player are you looking at mechanics are you digging up data or, or data are you are you digging in video just kind of what's your process in trying to get to know a player better major league level brownie uh, robert and squick and i would, would would go over video and and get a plan together that sort of thing um and watching those two guys work with players in the cage is phenomenal i mean it's a, it's a education every single day watching the way they work with guys it's, it's pretty awesome but they would be, we'll be prepared with what the guy does and have our ideas. But then if it's just, let's say it was just me by myself with the guy, I would flip to him, talk, talking to him and, and um, just try to get to know him a little bit. You know, if he's a major leaguer, he probably has an idea of what he likes to do or what he thinks he likes to do. And that's like, goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. Like you're just kind of building some trust. It, he's probably expecting you to say something. So uh, he, he might be a little more guarded. It just, you kind of feel out the situation. It's kind of like uh, making a new friend, I guess you could say. And then you ask him, you know, I ask him, what is his myth or what is he, when he goes bad, what is something that he that he does so I could I could watch for or keep him on track and that sort of thing. But I think it's hard to it's hard if you're to come in and come in, you know, guns blazing to make a change. The player has to be prepared for that and given a heads up ahead of time, I guess you could say, from management or something like that. Or if it was an off season thing, you know, one of our uh one of my mentors and guys we have, Craig Wallenbrock, would you, you know, if you send someone to Craig or if we go out there with them, the player knows he's going out there to work with Craig or and uh or Hank or Chris Anarisco. They they know they're going there to make some changes. Uh, when a guy gets traded, that's not necessarily always the case unless it's like localized to him and, and it may or may not be just different situations every, you know, come about. But that's uh, the biggest thing. If you, if it's not localized to him, it's just getting to know the player. You have to get to know him and build some trust with them, get some foundation going before you start talking about some things. No, that's great. I, I love that. And, and I, I think that obviously that's just extremely important. It seems to be a common theme uh, with the guys. It's just building that trust just so, just so you can help them. Like, I think that we as coaches, we all want to jump in right away if we see something, but it may be, I mean, we all, we all have biases too. 
Uh, and I know that, man, I just cringe to think whenever I was early in my coaching career, how often I would say things. And, and instead of doing what you're talking about, which is kind of taking a step back and getting to know them, getting to know their process. And by the time they get to you, they probably have one that's pretty good because again, they're in the top 1% of players in the world. And, and man, I just, I think about that and, and early in my career and I just, uh, I just shake my head. It, it's, uh, yeah, I would do some things differently. Let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough. It's, 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 it, that's, that's how I was saying in the beginning. Sometimes it's, it's some of the better coaches I was, I've been taught by guys is to not say something sometimes, you know, and that's, I'm talking like in a, in a, in a in-season setting or when you have a, a new player, not someone that's necessarily going there to make changes, but I just think that's part of the discipline part of it. And it's, yeah, I just try to remember what it was like as a player and how would I, you know, how I would want to have been coached or what, what would my reaction have been, that kind of thing. And so I just try to put myself in their shoes in that, in that sense. Oh, that's fantastic. So you ha- actually have a kind of a dual role. So you're, you also work with uh, the minor leagues. So you're the director of hitting for the minor leagues. Tell us a little bit about how, how those roles differ a little bit. And then, I mean, I'm sure you're, you basically sleep like two hours a day. I'm, I'm just assuming, but tell us a little bit about those roles and, and what those roles entail. Um, well, it goes back to, like I said, to Tim Hires, and he's the one who started it in 2017 and, and really just making it a, cohesive unit you know we have we're fortunate you know with, with brant brown and robert Vince, like how involved they are with our minor leagues as well in the offseason with our guys a lot brownie and i live in arizona and, and robert lives in in la and so whether it's guys going out to la or going out to arizona we're always working with guys top from the top down in major leagues and minor leagues and uh it's just a, it's just a, the role is designed just to bridge the gap so there's no uh there's no hiccup when a guy gets called up to major leagues or if it's uh you know information so that we're basically all on the same page and and now we have a, a new hitting coordinator this year, Christiana Riska, who's taking a lot of that load off of my plate in that sense. And he's great. And he, he, uh, he's worked with Craig Walmbrock and Robert for years. And, and I know Chris will all do the great job. So it's, it's made it a little bit easier for me because you have someone speaking the same language that's overseeing the whole department down in the minor and, and, and taking one step back, Will Ryan's our farm director, who is an ex player and phenomenal baseball guy and hitting guy. He actually, you know, helps that with that load a little bit too, as far as off of my plate. We all just kind of work together to make sure that when a guy gets called up or a guy's in triple A or a guy goes from double A to triple A or from high A to double A, they're all on the, the same page. So they don't get to some level and the coach is talking about something completely different or, mm-hmm. you know, some heating coach is saying it's just keeping within the principles, but, you know, saying it their own way. So that's why um, it's a smooth transition because there's been times, you know, in other organizations as a player, you get to a new level and it's like, you feel like you're, t- you know, it's a different language or you have no idea what's going on. And I just think that, you know, that can stunt the growth of the player and, and doesn't help them you know, hit the ground running. For sure, for sure. I'm sure the the cohesion up and down the system not only makes it easier for you guys because you're all on the same page, but it also helps the players to understand, okay, this is what I was doing here. Obviously, that's important to them. It's going to be the same way that they get up. And, and then it's it's not something that's completely unfamiliar. So I really like that. And so you get to see both sides. You get to see the major league side, and then you get to see the minor league side. And so I'm curious, what is the biggest difference between, let's say, high A guys or double A guys and big league guys. And I, I think for, for us as minor league coaches or even amateur coaches, we're trying to get guys to level up. We're trying to get them ultimately to the big leagues. But what really separates just the elite baseball players that are either amateur or that are, you know, really good in the minor leagues, what separates them from uh, being a big leaguer? There's a few things, but 
notably, like, you know, a guy that just say a high A to double A player, their best swing is a good swing. You know, they, they have the ability to take good swings. They wouldn't be even playing that level if they couldn't. But it's bridging that gap between their, their best swing and their worst swing. You know, so a major, you know, let's say the normal average major leaguers, like, if you watch their batting practice or you watch them hit off the fastball machine, like their worst swing and their best swing are pretty close together. So their consistency is going to be a little bit higher. Whereas the younger player, whether it's learning to control their body or, you know, finding the right cues, their best swing and their worst swing is going to be a lot bigger of a gap, which then is going to hurt their consistency. So I think it's learning to, you know, control their miss and, and, and manage their, their weaknesses. But it's kind of narrowing that gap between their best and worst swing, I think is one of the big differences between you see a, a major leaguer and a minor leaguer. Oh, really concise. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, and so you, again, you, you're the director of hitting. And so inevitably you, you guys are going to have to make some changes, whether it's someone who has leveled up and they're struggling and they're finally getting exposed or just, you know, somebody that maybe you're, you just acquired or a young kid, just any, any of those situations, but you have to take into account that, uh, you've already built the trust and you, there's somebody that's in your system. And, and those are things that you've mentioned come before any changes, but what does a conversation conversation look like whenever you are trying to make a change with a player? And let's just say a mechanical change, because again, they got to that level for a reason, but they may be struggling or, or you may see something that they will struggle with in the future if they don't change it. But how do you go about having a conversation with a player and what does that look like? In regards to just to making mechanical changes as far as a, a young guy? Right. Yeah, just just that somebody person. that you're like, ah, I, I, that's probably not going to work. Or they may have been exposed, uh, which would be a little bit of an easier conversation, I'm sure. But, I mean, we're all tied into and, and biased based on how we swing and that's kind of how we've swung for our entire life. But, uh, you, like, you, you being at the major league level and director of hitting, you have some experience with seeing what works. Uh, and so what does that, what does that conversation look like for a player with, whether they may or may not have come to you to try and make that change? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the player. It depends on how open he is. Let's just say if he hasn't been exposed, you just got to be prepared with, you know, with video and, and, and ask him about his goals or pay him, it kind of be like an instruction link type thing. So let's say it was the fall. If you have a little more time, it's going to be a little more uh, methodical, drawn out process. If it's in season, there's definitely stuff that's plug and play that can help you know, a guy, you know, in the moment type of thing, because you kind of know what, what can be inputted during the year or during a game and what has to be more of an off season change, I guess, because it just takes time. I guess you could look at it as like a golfer, you know, what's going to get the guy through the, through the round of golf or what's going to, is it the swing change this guy has to go through? So there's different times for, for both. Yeah. The conversation, I would just have video. I would have video of his good swings, video of his bad swings and why we want to change something and why that um, we don't think that will work and why we think that'll be exposed. And then you have basically the information of how his body works. Is he able to make the changes? Does his body allow him to make the changes? Because it's, it's not just a clean cutter, one size fits all when it comes mm-hmm. to the swing. That's a, you know an equally important part. How does this guy body? How does his body move? Is he is he a good mover? Is he loose? Is he really wound tight? You know that kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot of factors into it that we have a lot of different departments which we're fortunate with with the Dodgers to have that can give us information, um, whether it's R and D or our strength department. You know all these different tests that can help us make this player you know, the best version of himself. And that's the goal. No doubt. No doubt. And and I like that. It's not just based on your opinion. I'm sure that you're talking with everybody up and down the ladder and you guys are coming to a consensus on a a few things that they want to, that they want to change. So uh, again, I may be getting off topic here, but that that's the question, but bear with me here. Early in my career, I would say way too much. And now I'm trying to simplify and, and try again, I I told you about that earlier, but I'm trying to, to make sure that I say the least amount as possible that's going to have the most effect 
And so uh, is that something that you just kind of learn over time and, and you collaborate with people and you decide on one thing? Is that why collaboration is so important? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. It, yeah, you, it's like a round table, right? So you can have more opinions. You can kind of come to the best answer possible. You know, we do that all, all the time with, with, with Brownie, Robert, and I, and, and we just you're bouncing ideas off each other and you're, you're coming up with the best possible uh, solution you can at the time. But definitely simple is more, you got to figure out which which. If, it, if there's a couple of different things going on, which one you want to attack first or which is going to have the biggest impact. When it comes to hitting, I look at it as like, you know, you can you try to treat the cause. You don't want to treat the effect. Most people coach the effect. It's what's causing that to happen, not so much what, what we're all seeing. That's a great point. Treat the cause, not the effect. Uh, consider that one stolen. Uh, and so you mentioned that, that you are very sarcastic and that's kind of one of the things, one of the ways that you uh, communicate with players, but just again, trying to get to know them, trying to get to their heart a little bit and trying to get in their head and asking them questions. What, what do you, what would you consider as your communication style? Like what, like how do you go about, uh, how do you go about doing that? Because I, I think a lot of our listeners, uh, we're, we're attuned to, okay, communication is important. We hear, okay, to be a good leader, to be a good coach, you have to be a good communicator. But what does that necessarily mean? It can mean through text, email, through daily videos. Just what do you have as far as, okay, I need to do these things to be a good, Aaron Bates needs to do these things to be a, a really good communicator. And this is what makes me me. I mean, that's a good question. I think if you talk to some of the people that know me the best, um, they around me the longest, like, and I, I am sarcastic. That's kind of, I, I treat, mm-hmm. I try to treat the players like about they were my teammates when I was playing, like basically offering up information in a very non-threatening way or keeping, keeping the situation light. But when you, you know, so if you're always kind of light, lighthearted and keeping it light, when you have to have a serious conversation, the players know, it's just, you'll know when they'll know when you're being sincere, they'll know when, it, you know, depends on the situation or what they're going through, you know, and it almost mean more when you have to, I guess you could say, because you don't do it very often, but you're just joking and having a good time. You know, it's, it's, you just be the same with everybody. You know, you got to be transparent and, and, and not treat people differently, whether it's uh, in my mind, it's a prospect or a non-prospect in my mind, they're all prospects, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, whether it's uh, Cody Bellinger who won the MVP last year or someone else who's on the 40 man, like you treat him the same for the most part is the way, in the way you talk to him, I'm saying, you know, you're always respectfully sarcastic. That's the way kind of, I look at it, you know, but it's just a way of building trust and being a regular guy, I guess. And, and, and that's uh if you're real, the players will, will sense it and they'll, they'll sense when you're genuine. I think that one's come up actually quite a few times lately because I've gotten to, to interview several big league guys, which, again, thank you for being on and, and thank you to them for, for me being able to learn from you guys. But the term real has come up a lot, and, and I think that, that Andy Barquette said it, which who you may be familiar with. Uh, but he said it a couple of weeks ago and he was like, dude, players can sniff you out really quickly if, if you're not being real. And I, I just, I, that, I literally think that's come up every single week that I've had a conversation with a big league coach. Yeah. And he's great. He's a former NC state Wolfpack. Um, hey, there you go. Yeah. He was great. He, he uh, I, we've come across each other a few different times. He's a great guy. He was, uh, he was, uh, I got to know him a little bit, you know, last year he was Tim's assistant for two years in one world series and all that. And he's a great guy. For sure, for sure. The only other former NC State guy I think I know is Kyle Wilson, and I wanted to give him a shout out. Uh, minor league coach with the Rays, who's a, who's another fantastic guy. You guys are pretty tight knit. You guys have kind of your own little coaching community in the minor leagues. I mean, it's it, that's pretty cool. Yeah, Coach Avon, he's the best. He's, he's still there at NC State. He's he's always been like an uncle to me. Coach Avon treated me extremely well. Um, I transferred to NC State after my freshman year, so he treated me extremely well and, and took me under his wing and taught me how to play hard. And you know, I love NC State. It's a great it's a great program. 
And so you mentioned that your mom is Puerto Rican. And so do you, are you fluent in Spanish? I can understand baseball Spanish pretty good when it's on okay. topic, but I'm not going to be able to go down the street and just have a full conversation in Spanish. My mom's fluent in Spanish. I mean, but okay. uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not as good in Spanish as she is. Okay. Well, I, and the reason I ask is because it, it precedes uh, my question about English uh, as a second language for players. So uh, I don't speak Spanish. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really trying to learn. I haven't been immersed in, in a culture. And so I think that's really the only way that, that you can learn, uh, at least from, from my research and asking people. But how, how do you go about communicating with players that English is their second language while maintaining the level of coaching that you would the uh, player who speaks English as their first language? I, I was in the AZL for, for two years. Uh, coaching and most of the guys' language, most of the guys' first language on there is Spanish. It depends on how in depth you're talking about when the swing. If I'm in the cage with the guy, I can I can work with the guy and get enough stuff off in Spanish, enough terms, that kind of stuff for you to understand. But if it's something that's really, really uh, more complex, then I'd have to have someone translate, which I'd want to make sure the guy gets the message across and, and it's genuine and, and you're making that effort so he understands. But yeah, and it goes by both ways, you know. So we'll pick up on stuff and then the 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 players will pick up on English. So it's kind of a, you work hand in hand and help each other. And, and, but after being down there enough, you can, you'll pick up on the different terms that you need to, to always get something across. For you, I'm sure that this next question is, is one of the more important things that you do, because again, you guys aren't, aren't going to be adjusting mechanics a ton, but let's talk about preparation before games. Uh, and, and just from a game planning perspective. So let's say, obviously you guys are going to be playing every day soon, uh, which is, which is such a blessing. And I, I can't wait to be watching uh, some baseball and have some baseball on TV. I get, I, I think the ballpark cams are really cool on MLB network, but I get tired of like them going back and forth on what ifs and, and all of these different scenarios. I'm just, I'm ready to watch some baseball, but uh, let's talk about some preparation before games. So let's say you're game planning against a, a pitcher tomorrow. What's your process in trying to understand that uh, for the player? And then how do you deliver that message? Everyone's different. And that's a, it's a great question. Part, it's part of my, one of the big points of my job is making sure that the game plan is done at every level. Cause I think that's part of the stuff that, you know, can get can fall through the cracks going from the major leagues, to the minor leagues, obviously the major league guys are used to it and they, and they, they game plan well. And it's individualized for the player. You know, you kind of look at what the pitcher's tendencies are and you have an idea of what he's trying to do. And then you try to match it up with what uh, player X is doing. And, and then you present it to the player in a, either in a group meeting or individual basis, depending on the situation. Um, this year might be a little different because I don't think we can have group meetings. So it's going to be a, a different uh, process than usual. And when you go to the minor leagues, you can dictate a little bit more um, of what you want the guys to look for, or what, you know, what they're, what kind of pitches they're looking for and that sort of thing, just because you're teaching them too along the way. So, and as they get older, they, you want it to be a conversation. The best ones are the player led conversations. You know, the players lead the conversation, JT or whomever, like they, they're going to lead the conversation with the guy tries to give it free. Obviously he was great career, but unbelievable, that kind of stuff. So you try to start the conversation and get out of the way and let them do it. And then when the younger guys, you're going to probably do most of the talking and lead it. But as the season goes on, for instance, like the Cali Grancho, they play a lot of the same teams, a good amount. So you'd like, you know, the third time around playing a team, um, you'd like the players to, to lead the conversation and, and maybe get an older guy on the team. Hey, what did he do to you last time? Or what in, in general? So then they get them talking because you want that dugout chatter to continue on in the dugout. Like what's this guy doing to me? What's this pitcher doing? That sort of thing. Oh, really, really good. And I, and I think that this, that this changes too. So I go over game planning and I, and I separate that from plan and approach because I, I think that, that, Game planning is like our pregame. Here's what we're going to do if everything happens in a perfect world and, and he's exactly what his data says that he is. But what does that in-game and dugout conversation look like? Because, again, it's it's you may be facing Shohei Otani tomorrow, but his splitter is breaking is not breaking as well and he may have to go to something else and and you have to change on the fly. 
How does that how does that play into what you guys are talking about in the dugout? Is it is that player led too uh, that you're seeing stuff? I mean, just kind of walk us through what a, what that in dugout conversation looks like when the game plan may have to change. Yeah, I, mean, I think players you're going to be able to see it one. You're going to be able to see he's using something else or he's doing something different. It's probably going to be you know once in the order, so r- roughly, but it's going to come back from a player and then and let's just say JT comes back and says X Y Z and then and then he might communicate that to to some other comparable hitters or something like that. Um, it's, it happens in every most dugouts and most good teams, I would say. It's just watching the game and, and really not realizing when someone's changed something or, you know, someone's doing something different or maybe the guy's arm's hurting them and he can't throw a pitch or something like that. But it happens, you know, most good teams, it happens all the time. It just, you know, players talk amongst themselves and that sort of thing. And like I was saying, it, it, it's that's what player development in the minor leagues is for, is developing it, you know, the guys to, to have those conversations and start having those conversations and, and, and talking amongst each other during the game. So you're going to, be the driver a lot of times in, in those situations where I think in the upper levels, it's best because the guys have been around and they play a lot of baseball, of course, so they're going to be asking their teammates. I love that. And, and let's stay on that for just a second, because I, again, that's, that's something that from previous generations, they watch a ton of baseball or, or they say they did, you know, and, and kids these days, quote unquote, they don't watch as much baseball. And so that's something that, that has been, you know, I, I think we have to teach them some of the nuances of the game that maybe previous generations had known because they either played more uh, or they watched more baseball. And, and so that's really interesting. So how do we teach that aspect of it? Like you mentioned, it, it is player led and in the minor leagues, you want to start promoting that. So how do we do that? I, how do you teach them to communicate amongst each other? Yeah, like how how do we teach that in dugout conversation from player to player? I would probably say something sarcastic to one of them, like, "Hey, don't tell your teammate anything because you don't want him to get a hit, right?" So I would say something like that, <laughs> like to to like, get a laugh out of them. And like, I'm like, "Hey, guys, let let each other know what is he throwing, what's he doing, or not, like just or text each other where you're playing Fortnite, what this guy's doing tonight at home, or whatever you guys do." <laughs> like, I would I would say something like to get like a rise out of them. And then get them talking and they would laugh. But I'm saying something like without like talking down to them. I'm trying sure. to just get the message across lighthearted. That's kind of the way I would do it. It would just be spontaneous or something, you know, the way the way it would come out, but it'd be along those lines, something like that. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And and just I since you hit on that, uh, I do want to go back to the game plan and, and when it's not working. I don't I don't it's not I don't think it's like football where you have a game plan and you're just like, yeah, the, you know, in the third quarter, this play hasn't worked or whatever. But how long how long do you, does it usually take before you start to realize that, OK, a pitcher may not have this today or uh, he's doing this different today? Is it like the first inning for really good teams or is it like, OK, let's let's get to the third or the fourth, maybe the second time through the lineup uh, before we start changing the way we're thinking about how he's going about his business? Maybe of course five or six hitters, maybe you know, if you're, if, if it was me as a hitter, like a comparable right-handed hitter and he's doing something and he does it to the next guy the same way, then you kind of have an idea, I think usually, but you know, the smart ones, is, if it's like a John Lester, you, you, he, he has a plan the whole time. Cause obviously he could grow. He's such a smart pitcher and you know, he grew up throwing to Veritech and how smart Veritech was. And, and uh, so his is going to be a, little, a lot more of a revolving door, I guess, of his plan or he can adjust really quickly. For the most part, I'd say first five hitters. I mean, you're just kind of watching the game and watching the patterns and watching what someone's doing, and maybe they're doing something different throughout those five hitters that you thought. So you communicate that. You know, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to jump off your original plan, but it's something to keep in the back of your mind. Like, uh, hey, you guys, you might do this in this situation, even though you wasn't before. That kind of thing. And as far as game plans go, 
What is kind of like maybe one or two things that most guys want? I, I think that, again, you've got so much of this information that you don't want them bogged down whenever they go to the plate. And and I don't know if this is something that you can share or not, but it may be something that's, that's come up with multiple guys of like, okay, he throws this for a strike at this percentage or, or just anything like that. Is, is there anything that stands out as far as that goes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, strike percentage is good, but movement. Guys want movement profiles. That's what they want. They want, you know, what, what's the pitch doing? What is this, what is this stuff? sinking that run does it have late life is it called a slider but kind of more feels like a cutter or is it like a, a cutter that kind of just loses steam and bottoms out like i think i think personally guys they want below and they want to know what the pitch is doing that's just like in simplistic terms so now as far as how the guys are going to attack them that's another level of information i think when it comes down to the bare bones you want to know what the pitcher has what's his arsenal Man, that was a lot easier, a lot better answer than, than I was expecting, or at least as far as simplification goes. So uh, that's really, really good, and, and obviously that's a compliment to you. But but let's go with, with players that are struggling during the season. So you've got a player, whether that's on the major league or minor league side, and, and they're like 0 for 25, 15 punch outs, and they're just not seeing the ball very well. What's your process in helping that guy? And I know that that's a very like open-ended question, and I apologize, but kind of what's your process in deciding what what the player is doing that's different than when he was doing things that were successful? Well, if he was a righty, I would tell him to go up left-handed, first of all. If you go for 25 <laughs> with 15 punch-outs, I would say, hey, we, we should try lefty. I think righty's not working out right now. You need to give your right-handed swing a break. It's a little that's bit tired, great. I think. But, uh, no, so it would be, you know, you pull the video up from before, pull a video up currently. Um, there's probably some anxiety that's going into it too. So there's emotional issues because they aren't robots. They are, you know, humans in that sense. So um, he's probably got some, you know, he just needs to have some good at bats to get like some self worth back in that sense because everything is magnified in every player's brain, right? So it's, um, as a coach, you're worried about whether it's 15 guys or you know, 70 guys in an organization, you're worried about this, this umbrella of players. When you're a player, you're, you're concerned about winning in a team, but everything is magnified in your brain of your viewpoint of the way people view you, for instance. So when you're, when you're going well or going, when you're going poorly, it's magnified. You think everybody thinks you suck for the most part, but that's not the case at all. So it's kind of helping them understand that they're never as bad as they think they are. And they're probably never quite as good as they think they are when they're going well, you're always kind of somewhere in between. So, so if it's positive reinforcement to help the player get some confidence, that's, you know, hitting confidence go hand in hand. So you need to you want the player to get some confidence. And then you want to find ways for him to have the bats, you know. So he just needs to see pitches. Let's just say he's a free swinger. You want him to see pitches. You know, if he would say he works a walk his first at bat, so then his anxiety is going to go down a little bit because he had a positive at bat. And let's say the next bat he hits a sack fly. So I mean, he's still 0 for 0, and he's helped his team twice. And there's some confidence getting back, coming back into play. So then all of a sudden, you know, he gets to hit his third at bat, and so then like the anxiety goes down even more. And you're kind of starting to build it. You got to it takes you know build it brick by brick. You can't build the wall in one day. You just got to try to lay each brick as best as possibly you can. And before you know it, you'll have like a, an amazing wall. But I think too many people try to build the wall all at once mm-hmm. and you're just not going to get anywhere like that. You know, like Brownie or, or one of our head, head hitting coaches would say, you know, when you're struggling, do less, not do more. Try to do less. And that's a, that's a hard thing to do is controlling your emotions is, is, is trying to do less at the plate and not trying to do too much or do more. Wow, I really like that, and and that's that's a that's a great great point. I, I love the magnification of it because that's so true. Whenever we're, whenever we're a player, all we're thinking about is ourselves. And whenever you're a coach, sometimes you don't even notice that out, you know. And, and that's not to to diss on the player, but sometimes they they pay attention to that stuff, uh, at least as far as their own struggles. Sometimes more than we do, uh, and, and that's a, that's a really good point. I, I really like the when you're struggling, uh, do less, not more. That's such a such a great reminder. 
but let's let's talk about you a little bit and let's get into getting to know you a little bit better. What does your own daily routine look like? Like a, a day in the life of you and and I on our let's say we're playing a regular seven o'clock game today. What would your schedule look like? <laughs> you know, pre COVID, it may change in the next couple of weeks, but but what would that look like on a on a usual daily basis? Um, usually get to the ballpark around noon or so, right in there. If I woke up and they could have time to work out or something, I would do that. Depending on how late the night the game was the night before, but I get to the ballpark around noon. If I'm in the major leagues at the time, I'm ready talking to to Brian and Robert about you know something that's going on, or the, if there's a a plan, or you know the starters or the bullpen or something like that. We, we've been texting throughout the morning. If it's you know once I get to the ballpark, you're just getting dressed, going to the cage, starting working on you know usually the next series, the team that you're playing next, and then or if you're going over video of a guy that's struggling or not, there's always plenty to do and stuff that comes up once you're at the ballpark. For me, in the mornings, I would be going over the minor league stuff from, from the night before. So I'd be probably talking to uh, Will Rhymes or Brandon Gomes. Brandon's our uh, AGM. He helps oversee the minor leagues too, but Will is the director mm-hmm. of uh, player development for us. And just going over different things that have come up throughout the, the week or so. I won't talk to them every day about it, but um, Will and I are always in constant communication. One, we're friends. And two, professionally, like, you know, just kind of keep making sure no one falls through the cracks, you know, making sure everybody has a, has a chance to make it and, and impact our team. And, and then talking to hitting coaches in the minor leagues and seeing if anything comes up or you can offer any assistance or help in any way, that kind of stuff. Be all done in the morning or once I got to the park, I'd say right around one o'clock or so. You spend at least an hour or so going through that stuff. But sure. open cage is about two o'clock usually. So guys start filtering around into the cage right around two o'clock for some early work if they want it, just for the open cage time. And I'd say that goes to a team stretch right around 3.30, 3.45, depending on how many guys we have. Guys don't always aren't, aren't lined up there at two o'clock, but they know they can go down there at two, and someone will be there if they want to do their thing because they have to get their lifts in and do their prep work and all that. BP, I want to say this is going off just memory. I think I want to say starts around four o five, four fifteen, right in there. So we'll usually have a dead period of right between about I would say three thirty, uh, three forty five to four fifteen is, is the time. It's like you have a little bit of time. It's the first day of a series. You'd have your uh, your hitters meeting. I want to say about four o'clock, four to four fifteen. Yeah, then once BP starts, you're you're in full go because once BP is going, you're going to run up and get some food and come right back down to the cage just because guys who are in group one are going to start filtering down to now get re-loose for the game and hit off the machine or something like that. So there's not a lot of dead time once you're at the park, but there is a, a few pockets here and there, and it's nice. That there is three of us, so we can we can tag team some things, so it's uh, it works out well. That's really good. And and again, I love getting to see that behind the scenes look and just of how you're utilizing your time and, and how you're, again, you're, you're showing up and, and whenever the players get there, you're ready for them. And, but I'd like to, to hit on some lightning style questions and just, again, just, just to hit up some, what are you learning lately and, and some different things. So what during COVID have you started to dig into that you know that you're better at? And so like for me, obviously my use of Zoom uh, would be one of those things and, and video and, and technology, but but what's something that you've gotten better at during the last couple of months? I would say waking up early because I wake up before my, my five-year-old and my two-year-old wake up. So that way oh, I can nice. get everything I need done early in the morning. We got a five-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl. And uh, so I would say, you know, I'll get up at 5.45, 6 o'clock, usually get all my work done before they wake up. Um, I'm lucky my wife's done a good job. They're great sleepers, so they sleep in pretty late. So then uh, <laughs> I would get all my work done in the mornings for the most part. You know, there's still Zoom calls that popped up throughout the whole time before the draft and sure. and, and everything. But, uh, yeah, it was just kind of resetting the time management, like, basically, because once the day starts, you know, you're you're full-time dad for the most part. And it, so it was just kind of restructuring your time, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no doubt. I, I have the utmost respect for people who have kids and work at home because I, you must have an awesome wife like I do because otherwise I have no idea how people do it. Yeah, she, she's great. She, uh, and she's worked at home for, for a bunch of years now. She, uh, so she's been able to do it and with two kids and yeah, it's definitely a talent. That's for sure. Definitely. Definitely. Well, let's say, uh, that you show up tomorrow and you're in charge of just some offensive session or, or whatever you, you want to do with this, but what's something either a drill or like a, a game, a competition, but what's something that you know that you, that the players love that if you showed up tomorrow, that they would, that they would be all in because uh, they love it. Um, like on the field you're talking about, just like a, a, a yeah, kind be, of a simulated game. Yeah, it could be, or this is again, it's an open question, but just something that you know that you're like, hey, we need to switch something up because that, and this is going to be an awesome way to do that because they're going to be completely engaged, and I know that almost every one of our oh, players love do like, doing this. We could play like Oppo home run derby, something like that, center field, and have guys start betting or something like that. You know, that that kind of, that kind of thing. You just make a game within the game. It doesn't have to be home run derby. Sure. It could just be situations or. You just say infield in, but like put throw counts on it. So like three one count infield in, or two strikes infield back, or little things, and make it like point systems, or just get get them going that kind of stuff. Just so it's not just mindless swings. I think that's everyone falls into the pattern of just the mindless swings. That it's better to the more situations you can attach to something, the more uh, hyper focused the player is going to be, and it also okay. increases their margin for error. It's not just a fly ball out now. It's just it was a sack fly so in their mind. So it's kind of a a way of of getting something out of it. And and I have a sneaky suspicion that you may be talking uh, crap during this time too. Yeah, I mean, just depends with the situation, but yeah, usually, <laughs> usually. I just want to throw that out there. Uh, after getting to know yeah, you for the yeah, past usually. hour, it seems like something that that you may do. What's something that you want your players to do that may go unnoticed by other other people, but that you think is important? It's being a dependable hitter. It's being a hitter first. You know, it goes back to like the. I heard Tony Gwynn say this when I was a little kid. He, he, I heard him talk. He said, you know, if you came to watch him one day, you may not leave the ballpark super impressed. But if you came 10 days in a row after the 10th day, you'd be extremely impressed at how consistent and how good of a hitter he was. I think in this day and age with, with home runs and, and, and sports center baseball tonight, all they show is the home runs. They don't necessarily show like the, you know, they're showing the knockout blows. They're not showing the jabs that got to the home runs. But I think what I would wish for every one of our hitters is to be a hitter first. Take pride in being a tough out and take pride in being a good hitter. And let the home runs, all that other stuff, come on their own. They'll come. They'll come, happen when they happen. But take pride in being being a good hitter. I love that. What is your biggest coaching pet peeve? I think just in general, like one of the things I try to remind myself to coach is just egoless coaching. You can't have an ego when That's you're coaching. Yeah. Egoless coaching, and you're always learning as a coach yourself. It, the pet peeve would be like coaching out of context. I guess you could say is, is when someone you could send me a swing of somebody and I. I could tell you what's wrong or right with it, but I don't, I don't know the context or the background of, of how that swing got to that place, you know? So mm-hmm. his coach would know the person's coach would know how it got there. So I think coaching out of context, one can be super dangerous because you don't know the person's body or what they've been trying to do unless you're having a communication with that coach. So that's another thing. So if I'm, if I'm watching a swing in the minor league, like I'm not going to go call the first, the player myself, even though I can see his swings, I would, you talk to the coach first, just always you talk to the coach and, because he's delivering the message, and, and and that's part of the reason why the Dodgers hiring process is so rigorous in a sense, because um, we all want to be on the same page. But the coach knows the context and what the player is going through emotionally and physically the day before, so he's going to have a better way of, uh, of of getting that message to land or fixing it in a sense, as opposed to me, basically long-distance coaching is what I'd call it. It's not going to be the best, mm-hmm. most productive uh, way of doing it, just because I don't know the context of it. And I think that happens a lot in this day and age, especially with social media and with and with all the 
Instagram and the Twitter and all that stuff. I'm, I'm not saying all the information out there is bad, good, or, or what have you. Just there's no context or basis of it, and and there's no and there's no basis that a lot of that stuff holds up in a game. You know, you can hold up in a cage or a controlled setting, but what about when you're facing Strasburg and he's got you know he's throwing 96 with a 91 mile changeup and you got to hit between speeds. Your exit velo was great in the cage, but there's no adjustability in the swing. You know that kind of stuff. So it's I think that um, long distance coaching can be reckless, and I think that coaching out of context. It can also be reckless. And then finally, I, I know that this is something that, that everyone wants to know. And just what for as far as books go or resources, what are some things that have changed your coaching career or that you recommend to other coaches consistently? The Culture Code is one of the best books I've ever read. And that's not to say about coaching. That's about building a good environment as far as a working environment. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. I believe it's by Dan Coyle. Um, yeah, that's it's called The Culture Code. And I, I, I listen to an audiobook a lot. Like, so I've listened to it probably five or six times. And I'll go back and listen to certain chapters and, and different things and, and ways that people, you know, outside of sports or even, you know, Greg Popovich is one of the articles in there or one of the chapters, excuse me. And it's just, you just, you're always learning or remind yourself of certain things you can do if you're in a leadership position and, and how to make yourself better. And, and Popovich, the things that he would do, he's a very intense guy and he was kind of unpredictable at certain things. And sometimes his players expect him to act one way and, and he wouldn't act that way according to the book. But, there's just there's so many great snippets out of that book. I, I think I reference back to that book a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the Talent Code's good. The Talent Code's a great book. It talks about validation and, and the way people learn. The more tools we can put in our our tool belt with, as a coach and the ways we can get through to players, the better. You know, it's just going to make you a better coach. Same if you can say the same thing fifteen different ways in different. You know, I use the analogy of you got to figure out which door you know is open that you can get through the player. It might not be the front door or the side door or the back window. You got to find out which window, which doors the way to get through them so you can you can have that breakthrough but it's kind of like it's part of our job of coaching is finding ways to get through the players so basically anything by daniel Coyle. yeah i, I guess i guess they're <laughs> both the other i really enjoy those yeah, two books great. um yeah, super good uh, i just think they give you great perspective and 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 in how to lead and, and different ways to do things no definitely i actually recommended culture code to a friend of mine today who was wanting to dig into some stuff and I definitely highly recommend that. And, and again, the, the Greg Popovich chapter or chapters is, uh, is, is man, he's, he's awesome. Like I can't get enough of him. I, I wish he would write a book or someone would, would write a, a biography about him and, and go into depth of, of just everything that he does because I would, I would eat it up, but, uh, I'll link your, uh, your Twitter page, uh, in the show notes below, but uh, I'm just going to open up the mic for you. And, and, and again, Aaron, thank you so much for spending some time. I know that that's, that's really hard for you right now to probably get away and, and to, uh, to, to take that time away from, from your family and what you, what you guys are getting back to now with Spring Training 2.0. But, but again, thank you. Uh, it, but is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? No, I, I appreciate you having me on. I enjoyed it. No, I enjoyed, enjoyed talking. And, and if you ever need anything, let me know. But yeah, that's pretty much, I think that's it as far as, uh, I feel fortunate that we're playing baseball here soon. You know, we get, get a game kind of here July 23rd, so it's not too far away and excited to get all our guys back and, and get out playing and, and, and go win this thing. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.